Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and welcome to the July 20th edition of the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. The world is literally on edge about the coronavirus, more specifically COVID-19. In fact, there are so many different types of coronavirus, it's more scientifically appropriate to use COVID-19 rather than coronavirus, although I'm just as guilty as anyone else of substituting coronavirus for COVID-19. We now know more about COVID-19 than we did six months ago, but we still know very little. Vaccines take years to determine efficacy, and because antibodies may not protect you against further infection, getting a vaccine may actually take a little longer. So far, many states have refused to implement mask mandates under the guise that it goes against people's freedom. Now, there is nothing that impinges on your freedom when you're wearing a mask to prevent other people from getting sick. It's really not that big of a deal. I know I may get nasty emails about saying that, but please just do it. Now, there's a lot of shisey people out there marketing their products as either a protective measure or a cure for COVID-19 or worse, speculating on the long-term outcomes of people who end up infected. We actually do not know what the impact of children or adults in the long term is. Everyone I know that's been infected has gotten really sick. And even if they've made it out of the hospital, their symptoms linger. So wear a mask. There's also a theory the kids don't get it. They do get it. Symptoms are different, but they still get infected and show symptoms. Schools have been shut down, and I don't blame teachers for not wanting to go back to teach. States which are now seeing an upsurge in cases are facing what New York and New Jersey did six months ago, but yet they still resist wearing a mask. What happens to babies whose mothers get it? What happens in the years following an infection in adults? We don't know, but those studies are being started. I was actually going to produce this podcast in March, but I thought it would be too scary for a virus that was coming and nobody could stop it. Well, it's been six months and there have been chances to stop it. But because people will not wear a mask or insist insist on standing ass to elbow at bars without a mask or just can't stand the idea of letting their hair get a little gray, I guess it's time to remind people what kind of consequences this could have. And there are studies to look at the outcome related to autism as a result of COVID in pregnancy. And certainly COVID is causing a destruction in families with ASD. But let me focus on what we know about a hyperinflammatory response in pregnant women. Maybe not COVID-19 specifically, but other immune dysregulation. Again, as a reminder, there are pregnant women who experience an infection or a virus during pregnancy and have an immune reaction and a fever-like hospitalization, and they don't have a child with autism. I am not saying COVID-19 causes autism. I am not saying that COVID-19 may cause autism. I'm not saying kids who contract COVID-19 will later be diagnosed with autism. I'm not saying any of these things in this podcast. But since everyone has an infection on their minds, let's go back and review the evidence of the link between maternal inflammation and autism and also review therapies being tested which affect inflammation. I want to thank the Canadians for providing some great reviews on this topic. Maybe they can't save us in the U.S. from COVID-19, but they do a great job helping people escape Gilead. That was a Handmaid's Tale reference, by the way. So the role of the immune system is pretty complex in how it interacts with different pathways. This podcast is just going to focus on maternal inflammation, That's just one pathway that affects the immune system and may affect longer-term outcome. But it seems to be on the minds of every family, so it's worth discussing. If you want to hear about other mechanisms of immune system perturbation, 
come at me. Send me an email or put up a comment on the ASF podcast link. I do read the comments. I just don't always approve the ones that want to sell Viagra to everybody. There is a link between moms getting sick while pregnant and having a child with autism, but these links are not just limited to autism spectrum disorder. It's also seen in schizophrenia, which we now know is a distant cousin of autism. In fact, after the Spanish flu, rates of psychosis went up 10 times. It's not limited to a specific infection either. This increased risk, which could be anywhere between one and a half times to five times after an infection, is seen after things like toxoplasmosis, herpes, the flu, urinary tract infections, and pneumonia. Remember, not all people with one of these infections has a child with ASD or schizophrenia. In fact, very people do. But using large databases, scientists know that this is a factor in diagnosis. Because there are registry studies with maternal immune markers that are being studied in the Norland countries, which, if you know me, that refers to Norland, Sweden, and Finland, and also California. Scientists do know that activation of the immune system increases pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, IL-1B, and tumor necrosis factor. So these things may be targets of intervention, but they're also very complicated molecules and simply blocking them may or may not have some great side effects. A lot of the research about what these immune molecules do to the brains of people are done outside ASD. For example, IL-6 levels that are elevated at all parts of pregnancy, all trimesters, do lead to subtle alterations in amygdala volume, which is size, and also changes in the connectivity of the amygdala. This has been found in monkeys. I'll get to animal models later. The amygdala, as you might remember, is that anxiety fear center in the brain that's altered in different ways across development in people with ASD. There are too many amygdala neurons in kids and too few in adults. So the amygdala may be a target of maternal inflammation. There are also changes in the way the areas of the cortex and the subcortical areas connect. Not specific to autism again, but just as a note to what they can do in the brain. It's important that projects like the Infant Brain Imaging Study and Autism are collecting information about prenatal exposures and illnesses because they're doing just like the kind of prospective study of brain development specific to ASD that is needed. Shout out to IBIS. How can you specifically manipulate brain molecules and test their effects? Well, I mentioned it before. I'm going to mention it again through animal models or preclinical models, as they're known as. Preclinical models can include cells in a dish animals, or even organoids of brain cells clumped together. The main problem is that specific viruses may not affect animals in the same way they affect humans. So scientists use what's called a maternal immune activation model, which is what it's been called ever so scientifically a, quote, want to the system. Imagine the very worst flu you've ever had and multiply that by 10. Giving this want to the system makes animals just sick and stuff happens. It enlarges the ventricles of the brain, which is seen in kids with ASD, and it reduces brain connectivity. It screws up immune cells in the brain, of course. There are also some gestational timing issues. It isn't what exposure occurs in the first trimester is the same as an exposure that occurs in the third trimester. Without overloading you with nuances, because there are no hard and fast rules, and because you have to consider the virus, the severity, and the study, the people under study, and the outcome, the best way to address this is with animal models. That way you can give the infection at specific times during pregnancy and no other. Of course, these WAMPs early in pregnancy have different effects than later, 
because the illness can last the entire pregnancy. I mean, potentially. Some human studies suggest that maternal infection early in gestation leads to more severe brain deficits relevant to autism and schizophrenia. The preclinical findings do suggest that the timing of maternal immune activation may influence the severity or evolution of neuroanatomical changes. However, very few studies actually employed longitudinal designs, which may be able to adequately investigate the question of longer-term outcomes. Why, I mean, they're animals, how long could they take? Well, you would be shocked. Grants don't love to keep paying for animal models year after year, so they really aren't done. We need to change that. It does appear that infection in early gestation leads to accelerated brain growth early in life and neurochemical alterations in the prefrontal cortex, as well as diffuse white matter alterations in adulthood. On the other hand, maternal immune activation in mid-gestation leads to changes that only appear in the adult brain, such as an increased lateral ventricle, decreased hippocampus, and prefrontal cortex volume, with more pronounced effects in males. Finally, maternal immune activation in late gestation appears to induce neuroinflammation and decreased cortical serotonin early on, and then decreased receptor functions in adolescence. While maternal inflammation can produce later inflammation in the offspring, it isn't the only thing that does that. Environmental chemicals do. Genetics may influence this. I mean, it does to what extent, we don't know. But maternal inflammation does knock the brain's immune system out of whack, causing alterations in the offspring. But really, the primary theory about the role of infection is that it alters brain development through molecular mechanisms. Stopping those through pregnancy is kind of a mixed bag. How many different drugs are you willing to give yourselves as an immune mediator during pregnancy without knowing what the effects of those drugs are? The million-dollar question here that I know you care about is for those that have neuroinflammation during pregnancy, what treatments are there on the horizon and what are the outcomes that are a result of that? So far, altering inflammation in kids and adults with ASD will only help those with a specific neuroinflammation phenotype. That's the reason to pursue it, but I don't want everyone to think that some of the treatments that are out there to treat neuroinflammation will help their child specifically. That neuroinflammation phenotype, the ones you see where kids with autism have all sorts of immune markers and inflammation markers that are off the charts, that's not representative of everyone. And it's not even been fully established as a DSM-5 criteria, but markers of immune dysfunction or a history of immune challenge should be noted in clinical specifiers. So here's some examples of studies that have been conducted so far. And let me tell you, a conclusion of the review I read mentioned very few use a randomized clinical control trial design, which is really what's needed to determine efficacy. These are things that have been used to treat inflammation and markers of inflammation in children. The first are corticosteroids, which are kids with obvious inflammation. This isn't something you would do without being sure. IVIG, I've talked about this in previous podcasts, especially the one having to do with Phelan-McDermid syndrome in females and a neuropsychiatric phenotype. This should only be used if there's documented immunological features of ASD. It has mixed results in treating ASDs. Some very promising randomized clinical trials, though, but it also helps those with altered immune function. Sometimes IVIG is given and then kids don't need it anymore. 
Flavonoids and vegetables have been studied. Now these are broccoli sprouts. By all means, eat your vegetables. Minocycline has been studied. Um, really so far, there was no effect unless it's given as an adjunct to another therapy. Memantine, which is touted as a memory drug, but also has anti-inflammatory effects, didn't really improve any core autism symptoms. It's clear that inflammation is a piece of the puzzle in autism, but not the whole pie. So people, this is what I've been telling pregnant women who are concerned about their probability of having a child with autism if they become ill with COVID-19. Number one, in the grand scheme of things, more kids will be born without ASD than with ASD, so it isn't fatalistic. This is not what we know from COVID-19. This is what we know from things like the flu and urinary tract infections and other severe inflammatory responses during pregnancy. Still, bring your child in for evaluations early and often and look for warning signs. And this is something you can do something about. The same common sense behaviors that are recommended for everyone are recommended for pregnant women. Wash your hands, stay away from sick people, and wear a mask. This is a really complex issue, and a 10-minute podcast does not do it justice. Maternal inflammation is just one mechanism of immune dysregulation, and the brain is just one target. Clearly, immune issues can occur in other parts of the body, like the gastrointestinal system, which I didn't even get to in this podcast. Please, everybody, wear a damn mask. You don't want to be pregnant and get this, and you don't want to be the reason someone else gets this. It's a pretty horrible thing, even if you're never hospitalized. If I was to summarize this podcast, it would be wear a mask.